something curious about this broadcast. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, and we have main engine start, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. This is TGP nominal. Commence episode now. All systems remain nominal. 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 Hello everybody and welcome to TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. This episode of the show is quite special because we've got a special guest later on in the show. So before we carry on, I'm, I'm going to press up the fader and uh, bring in my regular co-host, John Berger. How you doing, sir? Oh, hey, hi! How's it going? Well, if you can get past that annoying greeting, it's doing just fine. How about you? <laughs> yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. Now, there's, there's one thing I wanted to say to you before we, we, we carry on is I know that uh, you've just had a recent delivery of something. And all I'm, all <laughs> yes. I'm going to ask yes, I have. is, have you finished it yet? <laughs> I haven't even started it. Dude, the, um, thing, the thing comes with a manual. I mean, it, it's, you know, in fact, just... I'm just going to go get it, so hold on. So, uh, yeah, it's exactly 1,969 pieces. Coincidentally, I'm sure. Now, for, for those of you out there that don't know what we're talking about, there's only one thing it can be, and it is the Lego Saturn V. The manual, and I call it that. The manual to put this together, and I'll give him credit, it is step-by-step, step, is 193 pages. Wow. It is a book, and everything... Everything comes in, you know, bags for which one, you know, like, well, in fact, I just so happened to grab the first one, and it's labeled one, so this is the one that should be put together, and this is going to be, the, you know, parts of the lower stage of the rocket, and it's just got a whole, oh, bags and bags and bags. There's bag 11. <laughs> uh, there's bag 12, bag 8. Trying to find how many bags are here. It's sounding like my um, 3D printer. Ha! That's bag <laughs> nine. Twelve might be it. Yeah, it's just so many pieces. It looks like it's looks like it's twelve bags worth. You know, and each one being you just go step by step, following the, the instructions in the book. Is it a separate book, or is it... I know there's supposed to be kind of a booklet telling you the history of the Apollo. Um, no, the, the history is actually part of it. Oh, right, it's part of the manual, okay. Yeah, it's not 193 pages of instructions. It's closer to about 160, 170, but wow. still... There's still a lot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and they tell you straight up, you just open each package, put that piece together, put that set together, and then open the next one... And just keep going. Yeah, it's nuts. I will definitely give them credit for this book. Also, I would like to put some thanks out to um, Sarah and Dan Parker for their hospitality at the weekend for Field of Force Day West Midlands. It was a great day, and it's a, a little bit more of an intimate event than the Peterborough Field of Force Day. And, and it was their first attempt at doing a convention of that sort and they had around about 400 people turn up which is not bad for a first event yeah it was a great day um i've got some great uh, content to play into the show at some point in the future made some really nice contacts while i was there including 
Paul Naylor from uh, Jedi News, who um, was a great uh, ally to have along with us <laughs> for the day because he was a local guy. And um, yeah, it was great to have on board. Also, Alan Taylor Shearer, and uh, I don't know what Tom's surname is actually, but he was with us for the day. He was our um, resident photographer. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing the results of his photographs. I'm due to get them at some point this week. Cool. Also, whilst we're on the topic of Field of Force Day, I'd like to also say thanks to a guy who got in contact with us after the last episode of uh, TGP Nominal, which was uh, Field of Force Day, heavily related. And uh, his name is Aaron Danvers-Jukes. And he got in touch with us saying how much he enjoyed the last podcast. And podcasts mean quite a bit to him because he is blind. And he very much wants to get in touch with us for the next Field of Force Day, which is in September. And um, I'm hoping to meet up with him so that we can do a little piece with him. So that'll be fantastic. So, I think we should get on with the the first part of the show, which is, as normal, space news. So, when we come back, that's what's going to happen. Good morning. It's T-minus 45 minutes until the final countdown commences. In less than one hour, if all goes according to plan, the three members of the Apollo 11 crew will blast off in their... My father's name was Edwin Eugene Aldrin. ...has dreamt of mankind's greatest adventure. I became Buzz. Destination, the moon. We looked back at the Earth and watched it get smaller. Oh, it was beautiful. Apollo 11, this is Houston. I've got the morning news here, if you're interested, over. Go ahead, Houston. Uh, an Irishman has won the World Porridge Eating Championship by consuming 23 bowls of instant oatmeal. I'd like to enter Aldrin in the oatmeal eating contest next time. He's on his 19th bowl. <laughs> Roger. Human nature and curiosity is to explore the world around us. And the world around us includes way beyond. Go, Houston, you're a Delta landing, over. I did it there, Delta landing. Roger, 1202, we copy it. We're go, same type, we're go. Okay, engine stop. We copy you down, Eagle. Beautiful, beautiful. Magnificent The next generation of explorers should not ever give up. This is TGP Nominal. Elon Musk's SpaceX accomplished a double-headed American space spectacular with two launches and two booster landings in two days from two coasts for two commercial customers. <laughs> in a remarkably rapid turnaround feat that set a new record for the minimum time between launches for SpaceX... Allsat's Healthy and Talking tweeted Matt Dish, Iridium Communications CEO, after the launch and com- confirmation that all 10 next satellites were successfully deployed from their second stage satellite dispenser. Iridium is a global leader in mobile and uh, data satellite communications. 
The next tweet said, it was a great day. <laughs> the US West Coast Falcon 9 liftoff of the Origin 2 mission from California on the 25th of June took place barely 48 hours after the US East Coast Falcon 9 liftoff of the Bulgaria Sat-1 mission from Florida on Friday the 23rd of June. Without a doubt, Elon Musk's dream of rocket reusability is rapidly taking shape, and very much so. Following separation of the first and second stages, the Falcon 9's 15-storey tall first stage successfully landed on the Just Read the Instructions drone ocean-going platform that was stationed several hundred miles out in the Pacific Ocean off of the coast of California despite the challenging weather conditions. Indeed, the the drop ships... Uh, no, drop ship. The drone ship's position was changed. <laughs> Why am I saying drop ship? That's a star. You been playing Halo or something? <laughs> <laughs> the drone ship's position was changed in the final minutes before the launch because of the weather conditions. I didn't actually think it was going to launch because it you couldn't see anything for a while. It was so foggy. But they said that's quite normal over that that side. Even Elon Musk tweeted, "Drone ship rep- repositioned due to extreme weather, will be very tight." <laughs> the 156 foot tall booster touched down about eight and a half minutes after the liftoff from Vandenberg Air Force Base. The launch and landing and deployment of the ten next satellites was all broadcast live on um, SpaceX's webcast. The Falcon 9 first stage flew with a larger and significantly upgraded hypersonic grid fins. I don't know if you saw that on the on the launch there. The grid fins are cast in a single piece of titanium and cut to form their shape. Four of the fins are installed on each of the Falcon 9 boosters. The upgrade is important, Elon Musk said, because the titanium fins can withstand the heat of re-entry through the Earth's atmosphere without shielding. Aluminium fins on previous Falcon 9 rockets had to be replaced after each flight, and a video from the onboard cameras on some of the flights showed them on fire during the re-entry. Uh, Elon Musk said that the titanium fins are slightly heavier than the shielded aluminium fins, but the upgrade offers more control authority for stabilisation and steering as the pencil-like 14-storey booster glides back to Earth. The new fins can be reused indefinitely with no touch-ups. That's pretty cool. Asked whether the heavier fins need more hydraulic fluid to move, Musk responded, they will, but the hydraulic system is so close loop, no fluid is lost. They do need more power and energy, but that rocket has plenty of that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Not a problem on that one. The Falcon 9 rocket can land in heavier winds with these new upgraded fins, he also added, which is awesome. I actually thought with the the upgraded fins that, um, well, you could see that the fins actually took a, a little longer to actually get into place. But once they were there, I thought they actually landed a bit quicker. And that might be just me, but it just seemed to I land quicker. I don't know. I'm still just amazed that, you know, it was a rocket launch. The kid and he was just loving the whole thing, so I didn't really take notice of that. But, uh, yeah, to, to have that turnaround in, in two days, one launch from one end of the country, one launch from the other. It says, including these two ocean platform landings, SpaceX has now successfully recovered 13 boosters, 5 by land, 8 by sea, 
and this was just over the last 18 months. It's a feat straight out of science fiction, but aimed drastically at slashing the cost of access to space envisioned by Elon Musk. It's just totally amazing. I just want to see the Falcon Heavy. That's going to be soon. I want to see that thing go up. I've been reading that there's hopefully going to be three Falcon Heavies launching within the next 12 months. That's going to be nuts. Have they ever said anything about how often these things can be reused before they're finally going to say, we're not going to use them anymore, we're just going to go to a new one? Yeah, they're saying roughly, depending on how far they've got to go, anywhere between 15 and 100 usage. (laughs) Oh, slight range there? Yeah. (laughs) So basically, they're just going to keep going until the wheels fall off? Yeah, pretty much. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) If it's working, you know, keep it going. He's been talking about uh, reusability of the second stage as well. Why not, if they can get it back? Yeah, total reusability. Obviously, with the Falcon Heavy, you've got three of these core boosters. So to get them, you're going to have to have one at sea and two at land, I would imagine. Well, I mean, unless they have three drones out there. As, as far as I know, there's only two, but that doesn't well, mean they to can say, build them. Yeah, it's got to come up with some new names. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that'll be a problem at this rate. It's just so fantastic the way they come up with these new names for, for them, all, all related to science fiction novels. I want them to start using some things from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. That'll be fantastic. <laughs> Okay, so then the next one has to be Thanks for All the Fish. <laughs> yeah. That that should be their next one. You heard it here, folks. <laughs> well, mostly harmless. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you know what? I kind of like that one better. <laughs> well, they're not the only ones trying to go for reusability. Paul Allen, who's one of the co-founders of Microsoft, he launched Vulcan Aerospace. He released some photos of his new rocket-launching airplane. <laughs> Big and ugly. Is this the the Stratosphere one? Yes. Oh, wow, yeah. The Strata Launch. Yeah. That thing, it kind of reminds me of a P-38 Lightning mm-hmm. with that double body design. But this thing is massive. It's got a 385-foot wingspan, uses six Boeing 747 engines, has a maximum takeoff weight of 1.3 million pounds. So... The wingspan on this is the largest in history for any aircraft. Uh, The previous record holder was the similarly ugly Spruce Goose from Howard Hughes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that it beats that one by 65 feet. I just want to see this thing fly. Now, there was rumors at at one time that the Dream Chaser was going to be launched from this thing. As long as it's under that weight limit. Mm hmm. Stuff would have to be mounted between the two fuselages. But yeah, I mean, it it looks like basically take two big airplanes, cut half of the wing off them, and attach those two together at those cutoff points. It's very similar to the Virgin Galactic White Knight, isn't it? It's uh, uh, on a bigger scale, of course, but... Sure. I look at the White Knight and I think, okay, that's cool. I look at this thing and I think, what? Maybe it's just a matter of aesthetics. I don't know. The Strato Launch airplane is supposed to have an operational range of 2,000 nautical miles. Basically, this is going to, supposed to replace the first stage for rocket launches. Mm-hmm. So this will take it up, and then the second stage will be the rocket itself, and that'll go. But again, this is all supposed to be part of the whole thing of lowering access to getting things up into space. There's really no details about its capacity at this point, but they did announce a partnership with Orbital ATK over at Dulles, Supposedly, will provide multiple, whatever that means, 
Pegasus XL air launch vehicles for use with the Stratolaunch aircraft. So apparently these rockets are going to be able to launch small satellites weighing up to a thousand pounds into low Earth orbit. Reusability, it's a good thing. Uh, wish it was a little bit more attractive. But hey, you know what, as long as it works. That's the whole thing. It's the practicality of it, isn't it? It's a workhorse. It's not a space shuttle. <laughs> and oh, God. It, and, no. and, it's not con- no. and it's not Concorde. So <laughs> those things, to me, are just iconic shapes. And, True. And, and we miss both of them, the, the space shuttle and Concorde. Beautiful aircraft. I miss uh, the shuttle more than the Concorde. What can I say? Well, uh, I suppose that's a little bit of being British. I already thought about that. I just didn't say it. <laughs> Technically, it's half British, half French. So, but um, <laughs> although there was a Russian version of it, then, and everyone was was calling it Konkordsky. There's also supposed to be a Russian version of the shuttle too. Oh, the Buran, which did actually exist. It only did one flight, but um, and that wasn't manned. But the the idea of the Buran was actually fantastic. It's unfortunate that it didn't actually. Well, when I say take off, I mean as a program. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, look at that. The Tupolev TU-144. Mm-hmm. That does look a lot like the Concorde. Yeah, very much so. I guess it makes sense. When you're going supersonic, you have to slice through the air. I mean, hello, SR-71. Mm-hmm. You realize that ski is also a Polish suffix, right? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and anything to do with the, the ex-Soviet block. <laughs> <laughs> Since 2009, the U.S. Mint have created a $1 coin to honor the contributions of the American Indians or Indian tribes. For 2019, the Mint's chosen theme is American Indians in the Space Program. American Indians have been on the modern frontier of spaceflight since the beginning of NASA. Among the individuals the coin serves to honor are Mary Golda Ross of the Cherokee Nation. She was the first female Native American engineer and her work for Lockheed Martin helped to advance the Agena rocket up a stage that supported the rendezvous and docking trials during the Gemini program. Jerry Elliott of the Osage and uh, Cherokee Nations calculated the spacecraft trajectory which enabled the return of the Apollo 13 crew to Earth for which he and his fellow members of the Mission Control Center received the Presidential Medal of Freedom and John Harrington of the Chickasaw Nation who in 1996 became a NASA astronaut and who launched to the International Space Station aboard the Space Shuttle Endeavour with the crew of STS-113 in 2002. During the 14-day flight, he performed three spacewalks totaling more than 19 hours. The mint sculpture engravers and members of the Artistic Infusion Program, the AIP, um, developed a portfolio of 18 designs for the tail side of the coins. The concepts range from depicting the Space Shuttle, the International Space Station, Apollo Command Module, the Lunar Module and the Gemini spacecraft with the uh, Agena Target Vehicle as nods to Harrington, Elliot and Ross. One of the designs uh, also includes a portrait of Ross and several represent Harrington as a spacesuited astronaut. The designs also incorporate feathers, both a symbol of the tribes and um, reference to Harrington flying an eagle feather to space. The feather is extremely important to the American Indian community 
I would love to see a feather in whatever design we accept, said Doug Herman, senior geographer at the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian, who advised them on the coin. You kind of like the one with the feathers. Yeah. It just comes out immediately as you know what that represents. So you got the feathers and planets and mm-hmm. things on there. Uh, yeah, it doesn't actually say when they're, when they're going to be available. Obviously, it's going to be for 2019, but sometimes these come out a little bit before that, don't they, um, when they get released? Yeah, they're making them collectible, but why not just release them as regular coinage? I mean, it says that it's meant to be a collectible, but it can be used. I mean, it is a dollar. I like to use the uh, gold dollars that we have, Mm -hmm. the gold dollar coins, just because it has a tendency of freaking people out. Just like the $2 bill. I love using those because it really blows people's minds. It's the same over here when you produce a five-pound coin. (laughs) Oh, I didn't know you had a five-pound coin. Yeah, they they, they bring them out for a limited... um time only. I've got one representing the Millennium, but yeah, it's a, it's a big old coin. It's about the size of a pocket watch. <laughs> it's quite big. Actually, I think some of our older $1 coins are like that. Yeah, I got one. Actually, this is of the Eagle, the American Eagle landing on the moon with the Earth in the background. It's 1972, and it's a big old thing. Ah, oh, so that's mm-hmm. um, representing... Gene Cernan, then. Yeah, that's a pretty good one. It's about maybe inch and a half in diameter. Yeah, yeah, it's probably about about the same size of a five-pound coin. I got my little coin box. What can I say? Oh, hey, look at this—a two-pound coin. A standard one, or has it got something? No, no, no. It's the it's the standard British two-pound coin. The uh, dual tone. Yeah. The outside looks like it's copper. The inside looks like it's silver. Which is what the new pound coin looks like. Well, I'll tell you, man. You guys got nothing on Canada. Look, just a little bit of a tangent, because I'm going to be going to Canada in a few weeks. They have the coolest dollar bills anywhere. I went to my local credit union, said, hey, can I get some? And they got it for me. I've got, I got 10s and 20s. They're made of plastic, mm-hmm. which is bizarre, cause you, so you can't tear them. If you're a bodybuilder, maybe you could. I am not a bodybuilder. But they're really tough to tear. They've actually got, because they're plastic, they've got a clear strip on the one side, so you can see right through it. They've got holograms all over the place, completely colored, unlike us over here, where all of our dollars have green tone to them. Maybe some colors here and there. American money is just so boring. And they actually smell like maple. Oh, wow. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> they actually smell like maple. Uh, Canada, you, you head, heads off to you guys, because that is some of the coolest money I've ever seen. I have even got a euro from when I was over there many years ago. No, 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 no. Can't hold up to Canada. Our new five-pound note is also made of the polymer and uh, has a see-through bit. That is too cool. And uh, apparently our new notes are going to all start to be like that within the next five years, I think. And then in the centre of the clear bit is um, a hologram of... A lot of people know it as Big Ben, but Big Ben's the bell inside. That is cool. The thing I like about the bit at the bottom of it, it, it says five... And then when you move it in the light, it says pounds. That is so cool. Unfortunately, we've got a bunch of stodgy old white guys in Congress, so we're not going to have anything cool like that. We, we did have a little bit of controversy over it because the, the actual stuff that the polymer's made out of is... Um, da, 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 I'm trying to remember what the... It's tallow. That's the stuff. Which has got a very, very small amount of beef, I think. 
something like that, and vegetarians were going absolutely nuts over it. Probably more vegans than vegetarians, actually, but, um, yeah, they were refusing to accept them in vegan cafes. <laughs> Can't please everyone. That's the thing. Well, we've spoken about it off the air, about that uh, Canadian coin that glows in the dark. Oh, yes. I plan on getting a couple of those when I go up there. So apparently they're in circulation already. Really? A, a friend of mine who lives in Toronto was saying that she's already seen them out in the wild. It's like, ooh, I'm going to have to pick some up. And yes, I will pick some up for you. Because <laughs> it is space-related. And it's just uh, awesome. Yeah. I don't think I've ever come across that ever. Well, to anyone who doesn't know, the new Looney as they call it, the, the, the I think it's a Canadian $2 coin. It's multicolored, but the center of it is a picture of, you know, a, a nighttime scene with the Aurora Borealis. The Aurora Borealis glows in the dark on the coin. Sounds so cool, doesn't it? If I see some, I'll pick some up. Well, I mean, my schedule allows me to hopefully have a day up there to just do whatever I want. So I'll just go into a Canadian bank and say, hey, you know, whatever, here's a 10. Can I have five of those? Either way. And if I have to order some when I get back home, well, all right, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> NASA is going to be testing out a new kind of solar panel. We've all seen the solar panels that they deploy for satellites or for whatever, and they're the big squares that are put together and then they fold out and then form the big rectangular panels. We've all seen those. Well, NASA is going to be testing a new one that is effectively a rollout panel. In fact, it's called the Rollout Solar Array. It's actually a bunch of solar cells that are simply wrapped up into a roll, and then it just deploys the roll on a what they call a high strain composite boom and the way those are set up is that there's no motors or anything like that it's just tension from being rolled up they let it go and just that tension will deploy the roll of solar arrays so you don't even need energy to do it it just well i guess okay okay you're going to get specific you need kinetic energy or whatever it is that's stored up i get it don't be that way folks <laughs> but they just unlock it and it unrolls. The whole thing that they're trying to check out is, well, obviously they want to make sure that it can work, but it's also lighter than the big solar panel boards. Uh, so that makes it better for satellite and radio and television and so forth, weather forecasting, GPS. They also say that if this works, it could be used to provide solar power in remote locations. So it's not just space use, they could just use it down here. Take it to wherever and unroll it and tap into the power from it. Wow. So that's a really cool idea. This investigation will look at how well they deploy in microgravity, as well as the extreme temperatures of space, and they're also going to measure the strength and the durability and how it responds to spacecraft maneuvers, because that's going to be an issue as well. Um... According to this, Jeremy Bannock, who is the senior research engineer at Air Force Research Laboratory at the Kirtland Air Force Base in New Mexico, he says that when the array is attached to a satellite, the spacecraft will need to maneuver, which creates torque and causes the wing or blanket, as they're calling it in this case, to vibrate. We need to know precisely when and how it vibrates so as not to lose control of the spacecraft. The only way to test that is in space. It's actually really thin. It's only a few millimeters thick. Apparently, it heats up very quickly, which creates loads that can also cause it to shudder, so they're trying to figure out what could happen with that. Another issue is, of course, launching, because it's 20% lighter than standard solar panels and four times smaller. So you're going to, there's going to be a cost savings there uh, regarding the lower mass, the lower volume. So and they also say that makes it possible to raise the bandwidth on a communication satellite. So there's really a lot riding on this. 
So this experiment that they're doing with this is that this roll of solar cells has recently arrived on the International Space Station. This is just another one of those examples where stuff that NASA's trying to figure out could benefit us here as well, as well as NASA spacecraft. I mean, how cool would that be? You have to go to a remote region, and you just roll this thing out, plug into it. Like a yoga mat of solar cells yeah. with a USB port. <laughs> Going camping or something and just yeah. stretching it out on the top of your tent. And then yeah. And plugging all your tech into it. <laughs> Or heck, go go to the next stage and make the top part of the tent out of that material. Yeah, that would be cool, wouldn't it? You know, and, and then you got a USB port on the inside and plug it in. And down all, all of the seams of the tent, you can have, like, LEDs. Mm-hmm. That'd be fantastic, wouldn't it? <laughs> of course, you'd have to have a battery to do all that at night, but, you know, still. They didn't mention anything about when the tests are going to take place, but uh, that's really cool stuff. That could really be a benefit here, too. <laughs> Thanks to recent improvements in space-based and ground-based telescopes, astronomers have been able to probe deeper into the universe than ever before. By looking at billions of years back in time, we are able to test our theories about the history of the galactic formation and evolution. Unfortunately, studying the very early universe is a, a daunting task, and one that is beyond the capabilities of our own current instruments. But by combining the power of the Hubble Space Telescope with a technique known as gravitational lensing, which we've mentioned before on the show, a team of astronomers made the first discovery of a compact galaxy that stopped making stars just a few billion years after the Big Bang. The discovery of such a galaxy exists in the universe is unprecedented and represents a major challenge to theories of how massive galaxies form and evolve. Their findings were reported in a study titled A Massive Dead Disk Galaxy in the Early Universe, which appeared in the June 22nd issue of the journal Nature. As is indicated in the study, the team relied on data from Hubble, which they combined with gravitational lensing, where massive cluster of galaxies magnifies and stretches images of more distant galaxies beyond them. To study the distant galaxy, which is known as MACS 2129-1, in case you wanted to look it up. What they found was completely unexpected, given the age of the galaxy dated to just 3 billion years after the Big Bang. They expected to see a chaotic ball of stars that were forming due to early galaxies merging. Instead, they noticed that the galaxy, which was disc-shaped like the Milky Way, in fact, it was effectively dead, meaning that the star formation had already ceased within it. This was a surprise, as how the the astronomers did not expect to see this so early in the universe. What's more, it was the first time that direct evidence has been obtained that shows how at least some of the earliest dead galaxies in the universe evolved from disc-shaped objects to become the giant elliptical galaxies that we regularly see in the universe today. Pretty amazing, isn't it? I just love the fact that we can take, especially with gravitational lensing and so forth, that we can look back in time just to see this stuff. The whole thing is just mind-blowing. But it's just the fact that there was, you know, a a dead galaxy that soon Mm -hmm. after the so-called beginning of the universe. Oh, the universe is full of surprises. I've even got a couple of other things in here that uh, I plan to talk about that are just weird. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, this, this is going to be an interesting show. There's some 
bizarre articles out. Not, not, not bizarre as in strange, but mysterious, I guess, is the better word for it. Oh, I've got a couple of them as well. Probably have the same ones. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked about Tabby's star often. That's the star that it became known as the alien megastructure star. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because they can't seem to figure out why it keeps dimming. Well, apparently, they've been taking another look at it because it looks like they've discovered that there's actually a very slight dimming before there's a major dimming. So they picked that up uh, about a month or two ago where it just dipped a little bit and just out of concern that, oh, oh, this could mean something, a whole bunch of telescopes started to look at it and then all of a sudden, yep, there was another major dimming. They still don't know what it is, but... There is a new theory out there, and no, it's not alien megastructure. Thank you very much. In this case, they're thinking what it could be is a gigantic ringed planet about nine times the size of Jupiter. So obviously, you know, the rings would go through, which would dim the light. Well, it was either Uranus or Neptune had rings. They discovered it that way because they were looking at a star in the distance, and it passed through, and they noticed some blinking before and some blinking afterward. Oh, hey, it's got rings. And they're kind of using the same thing with this, that, well, it got dim right beforehand, and all of a sudden it got really dark, and they're thinking that it could just be a gigantic ringed planet. It's going to take a lot more study before we finally figure out what it is, especially when those fluctuations so far don't seem to follow any known pattern. But, you know, with more observations, it could just be the orbital path of such a big planet. You never know. But that's what they've got going on so far. So we'll see what happens. But it's neat to see that that's still being kept in the news. They're learning a little bit more about it, and it's still not an alien megastructure. Thank you very much. Yeah, I've seen some stuff on YouTube about that. (laughs) That must have been quite amusing in a you've-got-to-be-kidding kind of way. Yeah, and it's just some of the comments that come underneath the video as well. It's like, okay, I'm staying out of this one. (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't that be something, though, if they finally determined, oh, yeah, it actually is an alien megastructure. Our bad. (laughs) And some alien task force heading in that direction. It's the aliens who staged the moon landing for us. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, I had to stretch it out to absurdity somehow. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, you know it. You love it. You can't live without it. This is TGP Normal. Nominal. Damn. The time has come to explore beyond our known horizons. To push... KFC's spicy crispy chicken to new heights. Sure, there'll be questions like, why? Well, I'll tell you why. At KFC, we choose to make spicy crispy chicken sandwiches. And unlike most terrestrial chicken sandwiches, we choose to hand bread them. Not because it is easy, but because it is hard. We choose not only to launch KFC's new Zinger sandwich in a $5 fill-up here in America, but to take it to space. Will it be easy? No. Will it be hard? Yes. We've already covered that. Will it be worth it? We'll have to see how the camera attached to the chicken survives the launch. But there is one question that we will be able to answer with certainty very soon. Can you actually launch KFC's world-famous Zinger Chicken Sandwich into space? The answer is, we certainly hope so. Our entire marketing campaign depends on it. But when we succeed, we will lick our fingers. We will lick our fingers good! 
KFC Zinger, the best chicken sandwich on Earth, and soon in space. Worldview is a stratospheric flight company. We do all kinds of things in the stratosphere, which is at the edge of space. Our mission is to change people's perspective of the Earth, which in terms of change is to improve it, to give them a new way of seeing our world. Launching platforms that we call stratolites uh, to that part of our atmosphere, well, that has profound implications for things like providing telecommunications, better weather predictions, better climate modeling, better disaster response, uh, the list goes on and on and on. So the Zinger helps by being our first payload on our main voyage. It is the very first time that we will be taking our vehicle up to the stratosphere for an extended period of time. There's probably a half dozen things on this mission that have never been done before. It's the first time we've really put this vehicle together that can fly for weeks on end, months in the stratosphere, solar powered and guiding itself around. Folks who are coming along for the ride and going to be watching it you're actually going to be seeing real aerospace engineering and, to some degree, space flight history in the making. Imagine all the things you can do by hovering over a, an area that just experienced a natural disaster. It's things like that that we're really excited about being able to do with our stratolite systems. It's actually, in some ways, it's sort of funny. We're flying a chicken sandwich. But on the other hand, it's one of the world's largest companies trusting the launch of a new product to our flight, to our maiden voyage flight. I mean, that's a big deal. This isn't fake. <laughs> they are launching um, a Zinger burger <laughs> uh, into space. Uh, whatever. <laughs> Uh, okay. And the website for it, and it's all one word, is yes, we are actually sending a chicken sandwich into dot space. <laughs> I kid you not. Oh. <laughs> the, Wait, has it already happened? According to this, uh, it was on June 22nd. Oh, right, because I've got a, a thing that says it's happening in 19 hours from today. Yeah, oh my God. Yes, we are actually sending a chicken sandwich into dot space. Oh my god. <laughs> and believe it or not, there's an actual mission patch for this as well. I want one. <laughs> that is just so dumb. I want oh my god. The actual container looks like a family bucket, but it's got a dome on the top so that the, the camera can see into it and things. <laughs> it's got what they're calling a selfie arm. Oh, my God. You've got to be kidding. And you can tweet to it, and it will display the tweets in space. You've got to be kidding me. How have I not heard of this insanity before now? <laughs> a gold cassette tape. <laughs> This can't be real. Apparently so. A coupon drop. A trapdoor underneath from which it will release coupons. Real astronauts are involved in this program. Uh, well, you've heard of Worldview. We've mentioned Worldview before on the show. I think this is just a thing so that they can make extra money from it through the advertising that um, KFC are, are going to be producing from this. Good for them. That is so bizarre. It's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god <laughs> I came across this the other day and it's only the last couple of days I've actually looked into it and actually got these clips 
the guy who was doing the speech at the beginning is supposedly Colonel Sanders. It's actually Colonel Sanders in a spacesuit with the you know the the ribbon tie thing that he used to wear and everything. I, I couldn't believe it at first, and then I looked into it a bit more, and they actually it is a, just a publicity drive. Dude, they haven't launched it yet. I'm it's, looking at KFC's Twitter feed. It was this this one last tweet was sent about seven hours ago as we record this saying watch live on Facebook or Twitter at 8 a.m. Eastern right so that's one o'clock if it's Eastern and whether you can get hold of these mission patches I don't know but I, yeah, I'd like to get one wow <laughs> I don't I, that is so bizarre but yet brilliant and KFC does this sort of stupid stuff too I mean, mm-hmm. they once had it where they had a big KFC logo that could be seen from satellite. It was a big stunt. Well, I mean, they're also owned by the same company that owns Taco Bell. Taco Bell has done things where they'll put a big target out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and if some piece of space debris hits it, everybody in the country gets a free taco. <laughs> They've done that before, too. So this is this actually, now that I think about it, it's not out of the ordinary for the, you know for the kind of stuff that these guys do, but Wow. It is a fantastic advertising campaign. And they've got a countdown. Right now, it's saying it's 11 hours, 18 minutes, and 2 seconds to launch. And see, the thing is, Worldview just wanted something that could be used as a payload. It doesn't matter what it was. It could be anything. It could be a a shoe. Anything. Just to launch it to see how it goes. It's Because these balloons are supposed to be able to travel for for multi-day missions and things. Uh, eventually weeks. This is one of the most idiotic yet brilliant marketing things I've seen ever since Google decided to make their one Android version KitKat. And Nestle said, sure. Mm-hmm. This is hysterical. Why don't you, do you remember that um, campaign that Sony did? That They wanted somebody to do the, the most unusual thing they could do in, for PlayStation. And that guy changed his name by deed poll to Sony PlayStation. Oh, jeez. Uh, I only, vaguely remember that. And it's on his passport and everything. Tweet using hashtag Zinger Space Tweet and hashtag Pick Me to send your feelings hurtling up into the unblinking nothingness of space at a rate of however fast the Zinger's bucket satellite is moving. <laughs> Probably not very fast, but still. Space Tweet, pretty cool. <laughs> so what I'll do, I, I have pictures of the module that this Zinger Burger's going in. I have pictures of the mission patch, and I'll put them up on the, on the show notes so you can have a look at these. But it is very bizarre, and it's just something that you wouldn't normally get on your average space no. show. Na- NASA would not go for this. So I thought, yeah, I- I've got to mention it. <laughs> it's one coupon. Oh, so it could actually end up anywhere. It says, we've built a trap door in the bottom of the bucket that will open and release the coupon when the time comes. Where will it land? No idea. That's for you to figure out. Oh, my God. This is so bizarre. I love it. It's a bit like the um, the golden ticket, isn't it, from um, <laughs> Willy Wonka. Because <laughs> I've got a golden zinger. <laughs> That's brilliant. I've got no other word. It's so stupid. It's brilliant. <laughs> I-, I can't top that one. <laughs> I'm sure you've heard of the wow signal. Yeah. Okay. Well, there have been a couple more things that have come out on that one. For those of you who don't know, back in 1977, Ohio State University's Big Ear Radio Telescope, as they called it, 
detected a signal from deep space. And uh, the way they did it is this radio telescope was receiving signals, and they would apply various values to the signal-to-noise ratio. So the bigger the value, uh, as in they, they actually caught a signal as opposed to the background noise, it would get a higher value and so forth. Well, the wow signal is a series of six different detections that they had in a row. Um, When it was discovered, it was printed off, of course, and it was simply circled with the word WOW by the person who found it. So it's become known as the WOW signal. Nobody knows where this really strong signal came from or how it came to be. Could it have been an alien signal? No one knows. So a couple of theories were put out recently. Uh, Well, a study, actually, that said that this is probably the result of a passing comet. Now, yeah, I know, comets putting out a ridiculously strong signal. Well, actually, it can happen. Apparently, there were a couple of comets in that vicinity when it happened, and this signal happened at a frequency of 1,420 megahertz, which is the same frequency that neutral hydrogen radiates at. So the whole idea was that, oh, well, this signal probably came from comet 266P slash Christensen because it was in a similar orbital position. The upshot is that that comet is actually producing a strong signal at 1,420 megahertz. So are other comets. They were able to detect this when the comet came into range again from November to February. So that's the big thing. And a study was published in the Journal of the Washington Academy of Sciences that says the results of this investigation therefore conclude that cometary spectra are detectable at 1,420 megahertz, and more importantly, that the 1977 WOW signal was a natural phenomenon from a solar system body. But, hold on your hats, folks. Others have come out and said, um, no, don't think so. <laughs> as, as always. Yeah, you know, that, that's fine. You know, we can't just say, oh, well, that guy says that that's the way it is, so there you go. No, 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 you got to do peer review and all that. Apparently, uh, another report came out saying that it's from a passing comet that nobody knew about at the time because those comets were not detected until after the wow signal. But obviously, colleagues are saying no, because comets don't emit radio waves that way. Originally, the hypothesis was that a second comet called P2008Y Gibbs was maybe responsible for it. You know, the whole thing. No one still knows the hypotheses have been the comets. It's been spy satellites. Of course, it's been aliens. But several astronomers think that the original guy was wrong about the comet. So looking at another study, the two issues that they've had, unfortunately, the Big Ear radio telescope was destroyed in 1997, so they can't use that again. Uh, But the two issues are that the signal didn't repeat, and it appeared for a short time. Now, the Big Ear Telescope had what are called two feed horns. And the feed horns is basically where they get the signal. It you know, bounces off the dish, and it comes back up in the horn and collects the data there. Well, the Big Ear had two of them, which gave a slightly different field of view for a radio telescope. So technically, it should have detected that signal twice. And it didn't. So they tried it again with two different receivers, and it said that uh, we should have seen the source come through twice in about three minutes... One response lasting 72 seconds, and a second response for 72 seconds following within a minute and a half. We didn't see the second one. The only way that can happen, apparently, is if the signal was cut off abruptly, and a comet wouldn't produce that kind of signal. Nor would a comet have escaped from the radio telescope's field of view that fast. So, 
Basically, they're saying, no, it couldn't have been a comet. We would have detected it a second time. Now, apparently there are phenomena that do sudden bursts of radio signals. In fact, it's called fast radio bursts. It is possible that it could have been caused by a glitch from the Big Ear Telescope. Whether it didn't receive the first one or it glitched out and caused a signal that wasn't there, it's possible, it's possible. But the other issue is the frequency of the transmission. So comets can emit signals in that range, but Seth Shostak, who is a senior astronomer at the SETI Institute, said that studying emissions from neutral hydrogen in that range, it's less sure that the emission would actually look like that, look like something that the Big Ear Telescope would have picked up. And he also said that comets may not generate enough hydrogen to make a bright enough signal like wow. And he said flat out, I don't think anyone has ever found such emissions from comets. So it looks like the wow signal remains a mystery. Yeah, that's a strange one, that. I was watching a a documentary the other day, actually, about a similar situation where this professor had been doing these studies for years and years and years at a university and it was also about a strange signal that came across quite regularly and they were trying to figure out what it was then after all these years and and he thought he had a, a theory and papers on it and all kinds of stuff it just dawned on him that this signal seemed to come at the same time each day that they tested it and when he did a little bit more research into it apparently it turned out to be a microwave in one of the staff rooms because it was it seemed to be at lunchtime when this <laughs> phenomenon ha- happened oh man <laughs> yeah well you know at least they figured it out yeah with the wild but, signal uh, we still don't know but you imagine writing these papers and everything else and turns out to be a microwave going off in another room in in the facilities probably a big disappointment but again mystery solved i guess that's yeah. good <laughs> Now, you probably know about this, John. Twelve astronaut candidates have been selected to be NASA astronauts. Mm-hmm. Out of more than 18,300 applicants, which is a record number of applicants, to actually whittle that down to 12 is quite a task. Well, I know that astronaut Abby is one of them, and I follow her on a lot of the social media. Yeah, she is a future astronaut, if ever there was one. Oh, I know. Yeah. She's like the spokesperson now. It really seems that way. Just her energy, her drive, and she's, what, 19? Yeah, yeah, and she's like been that. promoting this kind of stuff since she was about 16, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's definitely got the drive to, to be a next-generation astronaut. But going through the list, uh, you've got... Uh, Kayla Barron, 29, um, she's a lieutenant in the uh, U.S. Navy from Richmond, uh, Washington. Uh, Zena Cardman, 29, from Williamsburg, Virginia. You've got Raja Shari, uh, 39, uh, lieutenant colonel in the uh, U.S. Air Force from um, Cedar Falls, Iowa. Matthew Dominic, who's 35, lieutenant commander in the U.S. Navy from Wheat Ridge, Colorado. You've got Bob Hines, 42, from Harrisburg. Really? Yeah. 
Wow, local guy. <laughs> and then following him, you got Warren Woody Hoberg, 31, from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So you got two from Pennsylvania there. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and then you got Dr. Johnny Kim, 33, Lieutenant U.S. Uh, Navy from uh, Los Angeles, California. Dr. Rob Colin, or Coolin, 33, from Anchorage, Alaska, who's actually been working for SpaceX where he was hmm. in charge of the launch chief engineering group. So going from SpaceX to NASA. <laughs> you got Jasmine, and you'll have to forgive me if I'm pronouncing this wrong, Morgbelly. She's 33. She's a major in the U.S. Marine Corps from Baldwin, New York. Uh, Laurel O'Hara, 34, from Sugarland, Texas. Uh, Dr. Francisco, or Frank as he likes to be called, Rabio. He's 41 and a major in the U.S. Army. He's from Miami and Dr. Jessica Watkins who's 29 from uh, now this is one's going to get me Lafayette in Colorado Lafayette mm, close <laughs> With more human spacecraft in development in the United States today than any other time in history, future astronauts will launch once again from the space coast of Florida on American-made commercial spacecraft and carry out exploration missions that will take humans further into space than ever before. Now, these are the most diverse group of astronaut candidates that there have been for a long while. People from all walks of life in this group, and, and that's good to see. I am mildly surprised that they're all Americans. I wonder if there was a reason for that. I can't imagine that all of the applicants were from the U.S. Well, saying that, I mean, some of them are from obviously different routes. I mean, you've right. got um, Raja Shari, who I'd imagine has got Indian roots, and uh, Johnny Kim is from uh, Asian descent. They are mostly American people, not hmm. from uh, like there has been in the in the past with people like uh, Mike Foles and Piers Sellers and people like that who well they're UK born um, but American citizens now. There's been a few Australians actually I think that were in the NASA Corps, but it's it's good to see that uh, a great diverse crowd. It's going to be interesting to see where they actually go from here with what's actually around the corner or potentially around the corner. That's cool stuff. Good for them. I wish I could do that sort of thing. Actually, I don't know that I'd have the guts to do that, to be quite honest, even if I could. And it takes a special kind of person with a special kind of dedication to launch themselves onto a rocket. Um, I'd like to. I definitely would like to. But um, one, I don't think I'd pass the medical. But Yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't. That's the reason we're doing what we're doing. We'll let them take all the glory. We'll just keep touting it for them. <laughs> I wanted to get some involvement in space somewhere along the line and doing this achieves that and I never in a million years thought I would be dealing with NASA. Or a crazy Yankee on a regular basis. That too. <laughs> <laughs> the US Air Force, that, that lovely little X thirty seven B. No one except, you know, the Air Force seems to know what's going on with it. But they've announced that their next mission is going to launch in August on board a SpaceX Falcon 9. Oh, wow. Which is the first time they've handled SpaceX to handle this sort of thing. Well, I mean, I mean we've talked about them before. They're about one quarter the size of the space shuttle. They look a lot like it. Uh, wingspan is about 15 feet. So comparatively speaking, they're tiny little things. But normally, these things launch on a ULA Atlas V from Cape Canaveral. Obviously, they've been setting records each time they go up for, you know, length of time in space. 
but this time they're actually going up on a Falcon 9 for the first time. So of course, the Air Force Research Laboratory will test the electronics, and they're going to be testing oscillating heat pipes and so forth. But of course, everything else is secret. To be honest with you, once it's left the Falcon 9, nobody's going to care because they're just going to be more worried about the first stage. <laughs> That's all people care about. They don't care okay. about... <laughs> <laughs> I don't care how many times I see that. That is so cool <laughs> to see those things come back. You're, you're right. But, and besides, they've been setting records each time that thing has gone up. So for all we know, this thing will be up there in space for two years. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, yeah, it returned home. I just think it's just floating around. And it's just, uh, yeah, it's, just, it's driving <clears throat> people nuts with what, what it's actually doing. And it's, yeah, it feels That's... like nothing. <laughs> okay, General, let's watch the common people panic. <laughs> Oh, I'm sure it's got some kind of spy thing going. I don't doubt that they are doing legitimate stuff out there, but but I don't doubt that there's some kind of spy stuff going on. Although, I mean, people, you know, amateur people on the ground have been able to find its trajectory eventually. Yeah, I, I saw a, a couple of stories about that as well. They actually figured it out. Unless they find a way to completely absorb all sunlight, people are going to see it mm -hmm. at some point. Oh, God, did I just give them an idea? Well, now they can pick us up. We've got to add non-reflective surfaces. Now no one can notice. Yeah, well, they've, they've done that in the past, though, with aircraft. I mean, with the... Uh, SR-71. Uh, yeah, and the... Uh, what's the other one? The, the stealth bomber, the... Um, the B-2. Now, maybe that's the one you're thinking of. Yeah, it's probably what I'm thinking of. I used to have a T-shirt with one on it, and it came in a tube, and on the tube it actually said, Top Secret. Nice. I got it from RAF Fairford, which was also one of the USAF runways as well. Um, and I think it's one of the only runways in the UK that the space shuttle could actually land on if it had to. In the UK, really? Yeah, it's long enough for the space shuttle to land on if it had to in an emergency. Oh, that's cool. Huge runway. Used to have B-52s running off it and things back in the day. Those are impressive, though. B-52s are cool. They are massive. Yes, they are. I tried to get one in shot and tried to get the whole of the wingspan in, and it was very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that thing is a beast. What, eight engines? Something yeah. like that? That was a fantastic... Um, air show that one it was back in 91 just after the gulf war and you had uh, a lot of the planes in um in their gulf war colors and everything it was fantastic to see some of these planes but uh, yeah i used to love going to those we used to have one quite locally because um back home was the the number one training center for the raf and uh, every summer they used to have uh, an air show so because we were right on the doorstep we didn't actually have to go to the air show we could just like, sit in the garden and, and, and watch it from there <laughs> I remember growing up, we'd see a whole bunch of stuff when the air show came locally to us because my house was pretty much straight in line with the runway. Still a couple miles down, but, you know, when you've got jets screaming for the air show, they go right over my house. So, like, the day before and the day after, you'd see these F-16s coming in for landing and, and so forth. I could pretty much watch the air show without going to the airport. The air show that I was telling you about where it was just after the, the Gulf War, it was the first time I'd ever seen an A-10. Mmm, those look neat. And for a big beast like that, it's very manoeuvrable. Mm -hmm. That screeching sound that Airwolf makes when, yep. when it comes into attack mode is exactly the same sound as an A-10 makes. 
Well, they probably took the sound of the A-10 to do that. Yeah, it's amazing sound. Yeah, th- those are amazing planes, too. It's a it's a Gatling gun with wings. Mm. That's really what it comes down to, a massive machine gun with wings. They used to say that if you were in the tank that it was targeting, by the time you heard it, it was too late. Yeah. But that, that thing could have, like, half of one wing blown off, and it would still fly. Virtually indestructible. Really? I just looked at it and think, but it's huge and bulky, but it maneuvers like um, a formation plane, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like, wow. Just can't believe this thing is moving like it does. It's almost like a, a plane version of a, an Apache gunship or something like that. That is another cool aircraft. Mm. I've always loved the Apache. Prince Harry learned to fly those. Kudos to him. Because I've played just regular helicopter simulators. Those things are not easy to fly. Well, no, they're not too bad when you're actually in flight. They're kind of like standard transmission cars. Once you're moving, they're okay. But it's the starting and stopping and landing and so forth that's not the easiest thing in the world. Yeah, I can imagine. But yeah, both the princes were flying helicopters. I mean, as you know, Prince Harry was out in Afghanistan doing his bit. And Prince William, he doesn't do it now, but he was a pilot for the air ambulance. So yeah, they've both been involved in flying helicopters. Let's see Donald Trump Jr. do that. (laughs) Prince Harry, a lot of people have got time for him because he's actually been out and done his bit for the country and uh, and now he's sort of out of the military now and he's doing things for charities that help injured soldiers and all that kind of thing. And I think his mum would be proud of him for that kind of stuff. Definitely uh, credit to them for doing that. <laughs> Forget fuel-powered jet engines. We're on the verge of having an aircraft that can fly from the ground to the edge of space using air and electricity alone. Eh? Traditional jet engines create thrust by mixing compressed air and fuel and igniting it. The burning mixture expands rapidly and is blasted out of the back of the engine, pushing it forwards. Instead of fuel, there's a new kind of plasma jet engine that uses electricity to generate electromagnetic fields. These compress and excite uh, a gas such as air or argon into plasma, a hot, dense uh, ionized state similar to that inside of a, a fusion reactor or a star even. Plasma engines have been stuck in the lab for the past decade or so. They haven't got much past that stage. And research on them has largely been limited to the idea of propelling satellites once in space. Berkant Goxel at the uh, Technical University of Berlin and his team now want to fit plasma engines into planes. We want to develop a system that can operate above 30 kilometers where the standard jet engines can't go. These could even take passengers to the edge of the atmosphere and beyond. The challenge was to develop an air-breathing plasma propulsion engine that could be used for takeoff as well as high-altitude flying. Plasma jet engines tend to be designed to work in a vacuum or at low pressures that are found in high atmosphere where they would need to carry a gas supply. But now Goxel's team have tested one that can operate on air at a pressure of one atmosphere. 
We are the first to produce a fast and powerful plasma jet at ground level, I said Goxel. These jets of plasma can reach speeds of up to 20 kilometers a second. The team used rapid stream of a nanosecond long electric discharges to fire up the propulsion mixture. A similar technique is used in bulk detonation combustion engines, making them more efficient than the standard fuel-powered engines. It's the first time anyone has applied pulse detonation to plasma thrusters, Jason Cassabry at the University of Alabama in Huntsfield said, it can greatly extend the range of any aircraft and lower the operational costs, he said. But there are several hurdles to overcome before the technology can propel an actual plane. For a start, the team tested mini thrusters, which were 80 millimeters long, and a commercial airliner would need some 10,000 of them to fly, which makes the current design too complex for aircraft of that size. Goxel's team planned to target smaller planes and airships for now. Between 100 and 1,000 thrusters would be enough for a small plane, which the team thinks it will be feasible to make. The biggest limitation though is the lack of lightweight batteries. A huge amount of electricity is required to generate and sustain the plasma. An array of thrusters would require a small electrical power plant which would be impossible to mount on an aircraft with today's technology, said Dan Lev from the Technion Israel Institute of Technology. The power supply is also a barrier to making the individual thrusters bigger. Doing so would reduce the number needed to propel the plane but each would require more power. Goxel is hoping for a breakthrough in compact fusion reactors to power his system. Other possible options could be solar panels or beaming power wirelessly to the engines, he said. In the meantime, he is looking into hybrid planes in which his plasma engine would combine the pulse detonation combustion engines or rockets to save on fuel. Now, we've already mentioned these solar panels yeah. that are more lightweight and everything that they could probably use for this. It's actually is not new technology. I, no. I was looking it up, and apparently this has already been done in space on two Soviet probes, the Zond 2 and the Zond 3. But they've compacted it down to a smaller way of dealing with it so that it can be fitted to planes. Hmm. And I love how the image that they're showing from, I'm assuming it's the same article, it looks like a manta ray. Yeah. <laughs> It's like something out of War of the Worlds, isn't it? It's, um, oh, there you go, yeah. That's an even better one. <laughs> wow. This is the kind of stuff we need. We need a breakthrough in engine technology. And like it says, it, it wants to use it for planes, passenger planes, and they're looking at the edge of space and beyond. So, space planes. And there's no reason why it can't be done. It's there. No, there's not. We're on the edge. We're right on the edge of it. It's just getting it over that, that point. <laughs> NASA generally, and understandably so, considers anything that they got from any space missions and so forth to be their property. Well, a woman by the name of Nancy Lee Carlson actually is the legal owner of some genuine moon dust. And the story behind it is rather interesting. She found it on an auction on behalf of the United States Marshals Service. So it ended up being with a couple of other things, uh, including a launch key for a Soviet uh, Soyuz T-14, uh, as well as the back-padded headrest from one of the Apollo command modules. But there's this little bag of white powder. She got the whole thing for $995, and she is a geologist also, so she wanted to learn more about this. When she found it, it was actually listed as one flown zippered lunar sample return bag with lunar dust, 11.5 uh, inches, tear at center, flown mission unknown. 
So she noticed the serial numbers with it, and through the paper trails, she found out what was going on. And what this moon dust is from, it is actually from the Apollo 11 landing. So when Neil Armstrong landed, after he did his speech and so forth, one of the first things that he did was he took a plastic bag and just filled it with about five scoops of lunar rocks and dust, put it into a spacesuit, brought it back to NASA. So it turned out to be part number V36-788-034 decontamination bag. A friend of hers at the local rock club said, send it to NASA to get it tested. She sent it to them. They verified this. Uh, she got the call from NASA saying, we basically are not returning this. Uh, it's been forfeited over to the U.S. Marshal Service. The story behind that, <laughs> apparently... This was actually owned by a guy named Max Ari. I'm assuming it's it's A-R-Y, so I'm assuming it's Ari, who was the former director of a museum called the Kansas Cosmosphere. He was actually imprisoned for two years for stealing artifacts and selling them in auctions, which, okay, naughty. So NASA, realizing this, claimed that they were the rightful owner. They asked the court to rescind that auction and return the property to them. She sued them in U.S. District Court. What happened was, after the Apollo 17 mission, space was running tight because they were getting ready for the space shuttle program. And employees at NASA were told to box up what were seemingly minor souvenirs. And some of them took them home, some of them tossed them out. And this Mr. Ari was a planetarium director at the time. And so he was helping with some of that stuff. And he said, you know, would you mind if I keep some of these? Apparently, he was allowed to. Uh, not knowing any idea that it was from Apollo 11. But when all of this was said and done, you know, his house was raided because he was actually caught selling things that he shouldn't have been selling and so forth. And when he got it, supposedly it only had a value of $15. According to an, an inventory sheet uh, that, muse- that the museum that he worked at gave to NASA, it was just interesting to read all this. According to court papers, NASA claims that it lent the bag to the Kansas Museum in 1981, but yet they couldn't provide any records to prove it. So that was a little bit of an issue there. And because he's, his house was raided back in 2002 for that whole selling of, of space material that he shouldn't have, the FBI agents raided his home, confiscated anything that he found, including that pouch of genuine moon dust. So after that, the FBI got authorization to turn over his collection to the U.S. Marshal Service to prepare for sale. Just because of the way the government runs, the whole backlog of forfeited goods left them sitting in storage for like 10 years. So then they finally decided that it's time to auction those. By the time of the auction, and the marshals said what they were going to do with it, NASA said that they didn't remember to even look at the materials that the U.S. marshals were selling or auctioning off. Really what it comes down to is that NASA goofed. According to Joseph Guthines, he said he's a former special agent at NASA's Office of the Inspector General. He said that it's an incredible piece of history and losing it was a colossal mistake for NASA. The government sold off a national treasure and then got seller's remorse, but she bought it fair and square. And U.S. District Judge J. Thomas Martin agreed, saying that Ms. Carlson's standing as a bona fide purchaser gives her priority over NASA's asserted claim to the property. So back on February 27th, she and her son went to Johnson Space Center to collect her moon dust, handed it over to a security guard that they had hired to protect it, understandably, and it's all completely legal. NASA goofed up. They don't have the records to prove that it's theirs or that it was quote-unquote stolen property or whatever, 
And the judge said, well, she bought it in good faith. Sorry, NASA. So she plans on auctioning it off at uh, Sotheby's, I believe. They're expecting to get a couple million dollars for it. And she said that what she wants to do with the proceeds is to fund scientific and medical research, saying that's why we started the space program. We wanted to go beyond. Sure, she's probably going to keep some of that for herself, and I wouldn't blame her for all the headaches that she's gone through. But yeah, so it looks like whenever these go up on auction, whoever's the winning bidder, and I wouldn't doubt that a lot of museums are going to bid for this, but whoever gets it is going to own some genuine Apollo 11 returned moon dust. And it's wow. all legal. It's one thing to say, yes, it's ours, but if they can't provide proof, where else are you going to get moon dust? But they can't provide proof, so the court said, well, sorry, guys. You know, she didn't buy it under false pretenses. She bought it for what it was. The U.S. Marshals auctioned it off legitimately. So what are they going to do? Hopefully, if it is actually purchased by a collector or whatever, they'll at least donate it to a museum. Hopefully. That'd be kind of cool. Who knows? We'll find out. Could you imagine that, though? Yeah, that's that's actual genuine moon dust, and it's mine, and it's legal. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I'd put that one under security, too. The bit of um, moon rock they've got at the National Space Center in Leicester, it's actually at the top of their rocket tower. It would take a lot to get up there to get to it. Um, well, I'm sure there's plenty of security on the way. Oh, yeah, and I wasn't allowed to take a photograph of it. Okay, that's kind of idiotic. <laughs> I mean, unless unless they're concerned that the light from the flash might damage it somehow. That, or I might have been taking photographs of the actual containment unit. But I get where they're going with that. They don't want you to know what the security measures are, so yeah. you can't take a photo of it. Okay, mm-hmm. I get it. There's also a rocket there. It's a Thor Able rocket. It is property of the United States Air Force, and I wasn't allowed to take a photograph of that either. Even though it's not a it's 1970s, a 1970s rocket, but I wasn't allowed to take a photograph of it because it was property of the United States Air Force. Well, so what? There's a picture of it on Wikipedia. What's the problem? (laughs) Bit strange, that one. (laughs) I remember a long time ago when I went to D.C., they actually had one of the original flags. I think it was one of those that Betsy Ross actually made way back when. And they said, yeah, you can't take flash photography because supposedly the light will actually damage it. Yeah, that I get. On. That I get, but not taking a picture of a rocket that they're showing right here on Wikipedia? Uh, okay. <laughs> we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to have our special guest. On canvas with paint in the artist's school, it is red that is hot and blue that is cool. But in science we show, as the heat gets higher, a star will glow red like the coals of a fire. Raise the heat some more, and what is in sight? Behold, the star glows bright white. But the hottest of all, I say unto you, is neither red nor white when a star has turned blue. Regular listeners to the show might remember that uh, back in November, NASA research space scientist Noah Petro came on board to chat with us about all things lunar. Well, Noah joins us again to chat about a celestial event that is coming up soon. Welcome back to TGP Nominal, Noah. Oh, thanks for having me back on. I'm glad to be back here. I'm surprised you're crazy enough to do it, to be honest. <laughs> Wouldn't miss it for the world. we got a, a couple of cool things to talk about today, huh? Yeah. So, so what, what actually is occurring? Well, on August 21st, uh, there will be a total solar eclipse. That's when the, the disk of the moon passes between the Earth and the sun. And for uh, a few minutes at some places, 
blocks out the sun entirely. And so for, for those that will be along the path of totality, you'll get to see this total solar eclipse lasting upwards of two and a half minutes at most in some places. And you know, the, the, when the moon blocks the sun, we get to see the beautiful, dynamic solar corona, which um, should be just a magical show. And you know, in addition to that, we'll also, you know, we, as it darkens, you'll be able to see other planets, other stars. You get to see uh, Jupiter, Mars, Venus, perhaps even Mercury, uh, it, although that may be too close to the sun to actually be able to see. So uh, it's going to be an astronomical grab bag of things to enjoy on the 21st so who will actually see this this phenomenon well so for the folks who are going to be along this 70 mile wide path of totality that starts in oregon goes to south carolina they'll get to see a total solar eclipse that's the big show that people will hopefully get to enjoy if it's clear and people out of that zone as it were for totality they will be able to see um partial eclipses won't they that's correct yeah so for the majority of folks who are, won't be in the path of totality we'll see a a, a partial solar eclipse where the moon will take looks like to be a, a bite out of the sun and the closer you are to that path of totality the, the more of the sun that will be obscured for those that are going to be along the path of totality that's the the really spectacular show but seeing a, a partial eclipse and i've been fortunate i've been able to see one partial eclipse in my life uh, is pretty cool you get to see the, the you know the light dims shadows look weird because uh especially if you look at the the shadows through a tree for instance you get little projections of this looks like you know this you know, bitten off sun onto the surface uh, and so it's 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 a it's a cool show yeah it's going to be a, an interesting uh, couple hours uh, while the uh, the eclipse occurs because we had our total eclipse here a couple of years ago now 2015 and unless you were in the faroe islands you didn't really see very much yeah. actually i was out with the local astronomy group trying to see it and we had really bad cloud cover until just after it passed over and we got a partial eclipse at that point so we did get to see something so uh, even if you do have a little bit of cloud cover there is a chance you might see something my big encouragement for folks is even if you're not along the path of totalities to go out and safely uh, watch the eclipse because you know, you'll see something unusual. This does not happen every day. It certainly does not happen every day in the United States. And so it's, it's something you want to participate in and enjoy. And if it really is lousy weather, NASA, of course, as we'll, we'll stream all of the, uh, the events online. And so it's a really unique opportunity to engage with um, either a local astronomy club or, uh, you know, an event in your hometown or where you'll, wherever you'll be, or even with people online uh, as this happens. Okay, so you and I have the fortune of being in the, what's listed as the 0.8 magnitude. So when you and I are going to be getting a decent show out of this. How long is this expected to last from start to finish like when you can actually first start to see the moon cross in front to when it's completely done and over with it really does depend on, on where you'll be i will actually be fortunate enough to be uh, in a spot along the path of totality uh, hopefully it's clear you know in the, the the greater dc area where where i am you know we'll have about 80 percent obscuration you know it unravels over about three three and a half hours or so from when the moon starts obscuring the sun just a little bit to when the moon's disk moves off of the sun. This will be happening, again, depending where you are, either late in the morning or early afternoon. If, if you're not in the path of totality, this is a, a slow kind of event that will just happen over several hours. If you're along the path of totality, there's that critical uh, you know, two minutes or so of 
totality where you'll want to first take off your safe solar viewing glasses and, and enjoy totality. It's 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 just sort of unusual where most people will have a leisurely watch this event unfold. For the folks along the path of totality, that that enjoyment comes with the added pressure of having you know essentially two minutes where the main show happens. And so if it's clear. Those two minutes will be critical, but for most folks, will be outside of the path of totality. This is something you can kind of watch unfold. Uh, the path of totality takes 90 minutes uh, to crisscross the country, um, and so that will be a very intense 90 minutes of, of observation. Um, for again, from Oregon to South Carolina. Okay, so the absolute best place to see this, where would that be? Well, it's where I'm going to be, of course. Uh, <laughs> you get to be with me. No, no, no. I, I kid. There's going to be a, a spot um, just outside of Carbondale, Illinois, where we'll have the greatest duration of eclipse. That's where the, uh, the, the, the time where you're in totality is the greatest. Two minutes, 40.2 seconds in totality. And we know that uh, time very well because of our accurate understanding of the shape of the Earth and the Moon. Actually, any just as an aside, the, any uncertainty in the timing of the eclipse at this point is largely due to our uncertainty in the size in the sh- of the Sun, which is uh, mind-blowing to me. Uh, there's also another spot a little bit further east where the duration is one-tenth of a second shorter, but it's where the, the moon is going to be covering the most of the sun. That's the most obscuration, the greatest magnitude of, uh, of obscuration. It's a, it's a subtlety, but certainly the, uh, the chambers of commerces of both towns are arguing about which place is better to see the eclipse. <laughs> Honestly, either place would will be uh, you know an awesome sight as long as it's clear. Why don't those two match up? Well, that's a, that's a really good question. If we assumed everything was perfect in the solar system, they would line up. But because the, the shape of the Earth is not a perfect circle, and because where the moon is in its you know orbit around the Earth, both coming in and moving away from the Earth in its orbit, uh, you know, everything doesn't exactly line up. You know, we do get eclipses where we have annular eclipses where the moon is closer to the Earth in its orbit. And so, um, you know, it's a dynamic environment with the, the moon moving around the Earth closer and further away. So these two don't line up, however, really because it's how you trace the ray of light. Imagine you're a little ray of light leaving the sun. You pass just along the limb of the moon. Uh, and you're intersecting the surface of the Earth. Well, you know, it depends on whether or not you're, you're you know, intersecting at a, a point that's straight, exactly between the Earth and the Sun, or slightly off of it. So, basically, it's a long-winded answer saying it's a complicated system that's happening. And <laughs> nature is never perfect. The two, you know, you wouldn't want the two to line up because you get this conflict. It, it really, you know, it, it pits town against town. What better than that? But the the serious answer, though, is that it it has to do with the shape of the Earth and the path of totality um, and that it's a dynamic and cool environment. So how often do these uh, events take place? So we get a a solar eclipse on the Earth on the order of every 18 months, you know, plus or minus. The last time a total solar eclipse crisscrossed the United States was 99 years ago. And... um, one of the sort of cool things that comes out of this particular eclipse, and actually, if you think about eclipses on the Earth, okay, they happen every 18 months, and I look and see when these occur, and as you mentioned before, you know, the last time that happened in England in, what, 2015, the best place to see it was the Faroe Islands. Not an easy place to get to, and not a lot of time where the eclipse is over land, and so the fact that this particular eclipse will be over land for 90 minutes, 
means that we'll have essentially, if you, you know, imagine that there's measurements being made all across this path of totality, 90 minutes of an eclipse to measure. And for most part, eclipses occur primarily on the Earth because well, we have we live on an ocean planet, essentially. And so uh, having the path of totality over land for so long makes this particular eclipse really, really interesting. And the fact that so many people will get to enjoy it, take pictures of it, post it to you know, their favorite social media platform. I would ask people not to take selfies during the eclipse and just put the phone down and enjoy it. <laughs> uh, you know, one selfie's fine. But um, yeah, so so this level of eclipse does not happen all that often. And uh, and again, the fact that it's passing over some major population centers uh, makes it that much more uh, engaging, I guess. You said that it's about 18 months, but I actually mapped out the next five of them, including the one for August. Yep. And so you've got one in 2017, 2019, 2021, and 23. So we're talking a difference of 23 months, 17 months, 12 months, and 16 yep. months. Why is there such a disparity between total eclipses? Well, and th So the disparity really comes down to, again, it's this dynamic environment where you have the moon's inclined orbit around the Earth, about five degrees tilted, so you have to get this alignment of the sun, Earth, and moon. And, and it really, you know, the central player in this eclipse is the moon. The moon has to be in the right place at the right time. And so when those happen, when those align, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get total eclipses. Now we get some partial eclipses in between here and the next total eclipse, July of, of 2019. The moon has to fit into a very narrow window to cast its shadow uh, completely across the, uh, the, the face of the Earth. You know, these partial eclipses are where that small cone of shadow misses the surface of the Earth. And so it really comes down to this very special alignment of these three objects in the sky. Well, two objects in the sky and an object beneath our feet. But um, it really is just being in the right place at the right time. And with these partial eclipses that happen, uh, we, we just miss by, you know, a hair, essentially, as a cosmic hair, if that's a thing. It is now, I guess, um, that you'll uh, we, we, we get these eclipses. Because I, I know here we've got a 95% of the sun will be obscured August 2026, but we don't get another total eclipse here until September 2090. Yeah, and, and that's, you know, again, it's where you are on the Earth, where the rotation, and we're, you know, it's, it's there's, I mean, it's not luck. Nature doesn't like luck, but it's where you are in the, the day, essentially, when the Earth is rotating around. The next total eclipse that crosses over parts of the U.S. is April of 2024. So while we've waited uh, decades for a total eclipse to cross the U.S., and certainly 99 years since the last total eclipse to crisscross the country, the next one is in seven years to, to pass you know more across the middle of the country from the center part of the U.S., Texas, uh, well, up through Mexico, Texas, and then up into the the Great Lakes and uh, northern New England and, and southern Canada. So uh, it's the right place at the right time. And that's why people travel all around the world to see these eclipses, because it doesn't happen in your, in your backyard every day. That's right. Um, just taking it back to uh, the, the partial eclipse, I'll, I'll just mention to some of our UK listeners that you will be able to see partial eclipse at around 7.35 p.m., on August 23rd, so it is worth looking out for uh, on this side of the pond as well. 
Absolutely, for sure. And uh, yeah, you know, this is a global event. And certainly because of the streaming, anyone anywhere in the world will be able to participate in this event. So you mentioned earlier about these um, safety glasses. Yes. Um, what other ways are there that are safe to, to view it? And where can people get the safety glasses as well? Okay, yeah. So it, this is really, really important. You know, if let's say you got a really nice pair of sunglasses for holiday or for a birthday. Those will not be adequate for this eclipse. You need to get safe solar viewing glasses, welder's glasses, something very that will, will protect your eyes. Um, there are other ways to, to view the eclipse safely. Uh, you can make your own pinhole projector uh, where you uh, put a hole in a small piece of paper to project the sun light onto either the ground or onto a piece of paper. There's information on how to get eclipse viewing glasses and how to make your own pinhole projector at eclipse2017.nasa.gov. But people, if you're going to buy solar viewing glasses, safety, you know, don't buy it from some guy on the street corner. There are, unfortunately, a number of knockoff solar viewing glasses that are making the rounds. Um, and all of the information on how to tell a good solar viewing glass from something that's less than good is, uh, is at that website. But short of getting those solar viewing glasses would be making your own pinhole projector, which is a fairly easy thing to do, a fun activity, certainly a great way to engage kids with uh, how to uh, to uh, project and view this eclipse safely. Now, you mentioned that pinhole projector, and that really got me excited. I understand there is an STL file that you can get from NASA, which you can 3D print your own pinhole yes. projector. <laughs> that is correct. They've, they've made um, for all of the 50 states and the entire continental United States, yeah, a, a shape file that you can 3D print your favorite state or the country, the United States, with a small hole and make your own pinhole projector. That Those files are available at that, that eclipse2017.nasa.gov website and so if you have access to a 3d printer or you know have capability of getting something printed that is a very cool way to uh, enjoy the eclipse i would say handmade but sort of handmade and uh while uh, you know having a nice little keepsake as well anything to do with 3d printing you know i'd bring it up i want a 3d printer i don't know where you're going on man <laughs> this sounds like a great excuse to get one you have you know one day less than two months don't try to rush it on the on the 21st <laughs> i believe that uh, nasa are planning a mission that will touch the moon can you tell us anything about that uh, a mission to touch the sun uh, uh sorry the sun i'm so used to talking to you about the moon i know i was excited for a second so wait, wait you know something i don't know <laughs> Yes, the Parker Solar Probe is going to be launching next year, and it follows, it's timely because during the eclipse, along the path of totality, we'll get a really good view of the solar corona. This is the superheated upper atmosphere of, of the sun. It's a million degrees, and it's incredibly hot dynamic. We know very little about it. It's hotter, actually, than the surface of the sun, which is mind-blowing. And so this Parker probe, which launches next year, will actually fly through the solar corona. It'll be the closest mission we've ever sent to the solar surface. And uh, we'll measure this corona in situ. So it's an incredible engineering feat to design something that will operate in perhaps the most hostile environment we've ever sent a spacecraft. That's going to be awesome. And again, follows on in a timely fashion the enthusiasm, the interest that we're going to be getting in studying the sun from this uh, eclipse. It was originally called the Solar Probe Plus, and it has That's recently right. changed its name. Why was that? Well, it was named after uh, a noted astronomer by the name of Eugene Parker, 
who actually is that rarest of uh, scientists who has he's 90 years old and so hopefully he'll he'll be able to witness the mission that bears his name launch and uh, wow yeah it, it's a nice acknowledgement that as much as these missions are you know they're robotic they're they're very uh, important missions there is this human element to all of them that uh, that make them happen and will Goddard Space Flight Center have some involvement in this mission like they are with LRO? Yeah, so Goddard uh, has some involvement, although the, the mission, uh, the Parker Solar Probe, is, is actually managed by the Applied Physics Lab just up the road from us here. But, uh, you know, it takes a number of institutions, a number of people, not just scientists and team members, but it takes a number of, of facilities and folks to uh, actually pull these these types of missions off. And so the Parker Solar Probe has an extensive team and um, definitely uh, has partnership from across NASA, including NASA Goddard. Does NASA's mapping of the moon give us an accurate path of totality? Yeah, one of the really sort of exciting uses of, uh, of our data from the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter is taking the uh, very high-resolution global topographic map that we've produced and using that to predict what the path of totality across the surface of the Earth will look like for, for this and really any other upcoming eclipse. In prior eclipses, for the most part, people have used uh, a simple assumption, which is, which is fine, that the Earth is a perfect sphere and that the Moon is a perfect sphere. We know both of those aren't true. And so when you take into account the, the shape of the Moon as well as the shape of the Earth, that actually can adjust or shift the predicted path of totality where if you make those simplifying assumptions that the moon and earth is a perfect sphere, you get essentially an ellipse on the surface of the earth. Mm-hmm. But once you factor in the topography of both bodies, you get an irregularly shaped uh, shadow, basically. And, and so for this particular eclipse, you get a 49-sided shape projected across the earth's surface. And that 49 sides basically comes from the valleys along the limb of the moon. Each little valley acts as a mini spotlight of the sun projected onto the Earth's surface. And if you account for all of those 49 spotlights, kind of like a spirograph going around the center, you get this irregularly shaped shadow moving across the surface of the Earth. And when you are along one of those edges of the polygon, that's where you see this Bailey beads effect, the diamond ringed effect, this beautiful spot of light coming from behind the moon, and that's the sun shining through one of these valleys. And actually, we can use those maps now where these uh, sides intersect to predict where you would see two spotlights shine, and you get the double diamond ring. Um, And so for the first time ever, we can accurately predict what people will see, where they'll see it. And again, it's important. If, if you assumed everything was a perfect sphere, that shifts you either into or out of the path of totality by a kilometer or so on the Earth's surface. And so by be, using this precise knowledge of the shape of the Earth and the Moon, you know, we can tell people very accurately what they'll see and when they'll see it. So basically, the diamond ring effect, as you put it, is perfect totality. Once you get that, you know you've got it. That's right. That's right. And uh, either you're coming into the eclipse or out of the eclipse, but that diamond ring effect is uh, the light of the sun shining through a lunar valley. And so that's a pretty, I mean, to, to me as a lunar scientist, that's pretty cool knowing that something that's just a few kilometers deep or maybe a kilometer deep and a few kilometers wide on the lunar surface is affecting what I'm seeing with my own eye. Uh, or protected eye, I should say, uh, is very cool. And again, that's how 
as we like to remind people for this eclipse that you know the moon is the central player in what people see and so uh you know it's our knowledge of the earth the moon and the sun that uh factor into what's going to happen during the eclipse wow so what's what's next for you then noah I, i'm working uh, i continue to work hard on on the lunar reconnaissance orbiter there's a lot of work to be done to keep the spacecraft uh and the mission and the instruments going forward um, I'm very much looking forward to the next opportunity of getting to the lunar surface. So I was part of a team that put in a proposal to NASA uh, earlier this year for a proposal study to uh, evaluate going to the far side of the moon to uh, determine the age of this large far side basin. And also trying to continue my own research, finding time to do that. The number of questions we have about the moon and the moon's evolution are, are growing every day, even with the more, more data we get. Uh, and the more we're learning about the moon, it just raises more and more questions. And so I'm trying to find little windows of time where I can continue my own research, my own studies, but uh, all of which will be interrupted in August, uh, on August 21st for the eclipse. I'll be uh, going out and hopefully get to see the total eclipse uh, with my own eyes. I, I kind of missed it because we had some severe cloud cover, but we did have streaming from the Faroe Isle, so it wasn't so bad. So we had it projected onto to big screens and things. Um, so we did get to kind of see it. And, you know, gradually when the crowd, cloud cover disappeared and we did see the, the sun with a big chunk missing out the side of it, it was still quite spectacular to see. Yeah. It's a great sight. It's, I think what's really cool about it is, you know, it's something you take for granted, the sun. It's always there. And then one time it's not. It doesn't look the same. And all. It's it's jarring, but in a, in a good way, in a comforting way, I think. I was, I was telling John, the, the last one we had bef- before this one was in 99. And, and the best place you could see it in the UK was down in Cornwall, uh, down on the south coast or southwest coast of, of the UK. And we still got it then see the difference between when we had it in 2015 and 99 uh, was the time of year that it took place in 2015 it was in march so we still had the just coming out of the winter weather into the spring weather so it's going to be a bit cloudy and things like that in 99 it was in the middle of summer so when it actually hit totality you noticed it more Oh, really? Because yeah. the temperature just dropped. Yep, that's a cool thing that I'm looking forward to experiencing is this temperature drop. And I don't think people are expecting that. You know, that when the sun disappears, even for just a few minutes, it's going to get cooler and you'll hear the nighttime animals start doing their thing. And there's definitely going to be a, uh, a dynamic event happening. It's not just what you see, but what you experience. We're actually going to have uh, across the path of totality, people will be making measurements of that change in temperature to learn a little bit of that again interaction between the sun and the earth's atmosphere um when it goes starts getting dark obviously you're getting the birds singing in a way that it's like oh we're getting ready to to sleep and then like minutes later (laughs) yeah they're getting really confused because it's like hang on a moment we're supposed to be waking up now that's right. Wait a second. This is. I, I mean, the, one of my concerns with this eclipse is that people will have their lights on timers or on you know some solenoid that measures sunlight, and once it goes dark, the lights will come on, and you don't want that to happen. You want it to remain dark. So people need to remember to turn off. Make sure their lights are turned off. Uh, during during the eclipse so that uh, you get to enjoy the full show I, I actually got to view it um, I was with a, a guy who does car valeting uh-huh. and uh, he 
was actually polishing a car at the time and he really polished it to the maximum that he could so that he got the most reflection onto the car and we actually saw the change in, on the reflection of the bonnet of this or the, the hood of this car oh that's fabulous yeah <laughs> I mean and that's the fun thing is this eclipse I think people will enjoy it in different ways and have different experiences I'm, I'm eager to find out those sort of subtle interesting stories of well I was doing this and I stopped I looked up and I just stood there for 30 minutes and safely most importantly safely watched uh, the eclipse yeah that's that's one thing we're going to have to keep making a point of telling people is do it safely yes. it's, it's that, not I mean, worth the, the the eye problems that you could have afterwards yeah I know your, your high end sunglasses are not going to cut it you've got to get these proper uh either solar viewing glasses or again set up a, uh, a projector or um, as I say if you're in an in- industrial environment and you might have someone there that's got welding goggles or a welding mask that will work absolutely yeah I mean it'll be it'll cover your whole face it'll look pretty cool uh, but yeah short of that <laughs> getting the uh, sort of the standard paper solar viewing glasses uh, or ordering online I've seen now online that people are selling them but making sure that it's from a reputable source uh, and it meets all of the standards. And it- I've seen some of the more expensive ones that you can uh, obtain, and uh, you, you do end up looking like Bono. It's um- <laughs> <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with that. That's pretty great. <laughs> Even like what you're saying regarding the glasses, I went on, on and checked some sites and so forth. There's one place out there. Granted, you got to buy 25 of them, but you're buying 25 paper glasses that are certified for use with, with eclipses, and it's less than 22 bucks. Buy a bulk, yeah. give them to your friends. Absolutely. One for every kid in the neighborhood. Or Again, the price to have a safe and enjoyable viewing experience is negligible compared to uh, doing some real damage to your eyes. I, yesterday, I was testing some solar glasses that I have, and uh, I was... I mean, I made. I was sort of just putting them on, seeing what I could see of the full sun, and boy, I tell you, just you know, taking off the glasses and being up in the sun, think, oh, that was a real mistake. You got to put the glasses <laughs> on when you're looking down, look up with them, look down, take them off. It's real risky to to play around with uh, your eyes in any way, and so you've got to, yeah, everyone's got to be very careful. Well, another thing to be careful of, also, if you're going to try to take pictures of it, be careful because directly exposing a camera image sensor directly to the sun can also cause problems with the sensor right yeah so having the right filters on your camera having everything uh, tested you know really i mean as much as i certainly want to have a good time and watch the eclipse and enjoy it I, you know i'm not exactly the biggest selfie taker in the world but i appreciate the sort of the desire to do that I think, you know, take a picture and then let the professionals take the really beautiful pictures and just enjoy it and try not to get too uh, carried away with it and really soak in the moment, soak in the uh, sort of the atmosphere as best you can and just uh, allow yourself to uh, have fun with it because the last thing that we want to have happen is anybody just uh, to have a bummer of a time. You know, this is going to be perhaps a once in a lifetime event for, for many people. And, uh, you know, let's just enjoy it and be smart about it, but uh, really enjoy it. So once again, Noah, what's the the web address to go to for uh, the Eclipse? Uh, The NASA website where you can find out about where there will be Eclipse viewing opportunities, 
the path of totality, what you'll see in your hometown or where you'll be, how to view the eclipse safely, uh, animations, predictions of, of what will, will occur. Those are available at eclipse2017.nasa.gov. And you know, from there, you can see the precise path of totality is predicted by both LRO and Earth-based data, topographic data. So, yeah, there's uh, a smorgasbord of activity of, of material uh, that's available there. And um, people should go there, bookmark it, check back regularly as we'll be updating it uh, up until the 21st. Awesome. Uh, Mark, you do know what a smorgasbord is, right? I mean, you've been to the U.S. enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, just making sure. I know, because I, I remember that uh, when we were talking with Richard Bobes at one time, he's just like, a what? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Noah and I are obviously near to uh, Amish part of Pennsylvania. We know what a smorgasbord is. I am kind of excited for the 2024 eclipse because I should be in the 90th percentile where that happens, whereas right now I'm just in the 80th. So oh. that's, well, you well, it's going to be crossing right over Lake Erie. Cleveland and um, Dallas are both on the path of totality for that one. So make your plans now. The, the, the good thing about it all is that not only have you got these things happening on the northern hemisphere, you've got different ones happening in the southern hemisphere as well. So uh, if you don't get them here, take a trip down south. And uh, <laughs> Well, well you know, it, it's interesting that the statement that was made earlier about how this is actually kind of rare and that it's crossing the entire landmass of the U.S., I looked up the next four after that. The next two just go over a very small part of Southern America. The second one goes even farther south. And the one in 2021, pretty much you're only going to see it if you're in Antarctica. Right. And the one in 2023, you might see it on like the extreme northwestern coast of Australia and some of the islands in that area. But otherwise, it's almost all ocean. Well, that's, that's, we live in an ocean world. Um, and, uh, you know, if you got access to uh, a boat that can go anywhere on the earth, you might be in good shape. I know a lot of people will get on airplanes that will fly through and, and, and sort of follow the eclipse as well. Well, I uh, head downtown to NASA's big uh, eclipse media event and sort of see what that's all about and then uh, get some rest and then get ready for the next two months, which is going to be crazy. So you say media event. Is that being televised or is that going to be on NASA TV? But yeah, NASA TV will cover it live. As always, everything is streamed. Yeah these days <laughs> what is the saying goes like the the uh, revolution will be televised well so will the eclipse <laughs> <laughs> and everything else <laughs> as a matter of fact now, it's really cool and this is an event that will bring people together for something that's just really special well thanks again Noah it's, it's been great having you back on the show again I think what we're going to have to arrange is because it's your second time on the show then yeah. I th I think we're going to have to make you one of our honorary crew members. Oh, well, I think that comes with a lot of honor, a distinction. I have to add to my resume, for sure. It also involves receiving one of our mission patches. Oh, now that. But, 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 you know, considering my proximity to Washington, D.C., I think that that should actually be handed to him in person. Yeah, we can make that happen for sure. Cool. Not that I'm being self-serving with an excuse to go to D.C. or anything. No, no, but any reason to come. <laughs> oh, good thing. What I'll do now is I'll arrange for one of them, the mission package to be sent to John, and we'll make the arrangements for you two to meet up. And uh, if you wouldn't mind posing for a photograph with the mission patch so that we can put it on our wall of honorary crew members. I would be delighted to do that. I'll try to find some, some appropriate 
environments, maybe even during the eclipse, if I get it before August 21st, I'd be delighted to do that. Cool. Right. As I say, thanks again. And um, we'll speak to you again soon, no doubt, Noah. I can't wait. Yeah. And have a great summer. Good luck. And uh, all speed ahead to August 21st. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Take care, guys. Thanks for everything. Really appreciate it. So, yeah, that was only right that we should induct Noah into the, the honorary crew members club, if you like. Well, yeah, I mean, it's the second time he was on. Yeah, I actually sent Noah a picture of what the patches look like, and he just went, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I got to hand it to him in person. That'd just be so cool. Yeah, yeah, and and he it sounds like he's up for that. So, uh, like he said, at the end there... Uh, He's going to try and have the photo taken with it in some special area or maybe when the uh, eclipse actually takes place. Mm -hmm. So that would be quite cool to have him in the picture with the patch and an eclipse in the background would be quite cool. That would be neat. (laughs) And, And I've already ordered my pack of sunglasses or solar glasses, whatever, eclipse glasses. And they're on the way. Had to order a minimum of 25, which, okay, whatever. It kind of sucks because over here, school starts that day. So my kids were not happy to hear that. But what I might do is just take whatever I need for here and then give the rest of the school. I was going to say, because surely the school wouldn't deny them seeing something that happens once in a blue moon. I hope not. But, I mean, the other side of that coin is it'll still be going on even after they get out of school. And it's still, let them get out and take a look at it while it's at its peak. You know, because the next one's going to be, what, 2024? Uh, for you guys, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that one's going to be even better, which is sweet. For us, uh, we've got a, a 95% coverage in 2026, and then the next total eclipse for us isn't until 2090. Ooh, yeah, you won't be seeing that one. <laughs> <laughs> but we've had one in 99 and one in 2015, so it's not too bad, and I got to see both of them, kind of. <laughs> yeah, we'll be in the 80th percent for this one, 90th percent for the next one. You know what? That's just as cool. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, 2026 for us will be 95% coverage. So, wow. That would be good. Is that like going over the channel or something? Like, how is it 95? I, I'm not too sure. That was something I was reading into, but I'm not too sure how that's governed, as, as it were. But I imagine that would be somewhere like down in Cornwall again, like it was in 99, which was one of the better ones. So that's the next opportunity we've got. And then, as I say, to pro- a full totality here won't be until 2090. <laughs> Oof. But that's cool. Hopefully the weather cooperates. Please, please, please. Played this in before, and there's bound to be some people that missed it the first time I played it in. This is uh, to give you an idea of what goes on during uh, an eclipse. Here's a recording I made in 2015 when I was out with the Letchworth and District Astronomical Society. Here comes the sun, I say it's all right. So here I am at uh, Letchworth Town Centre uh, for uh, an amazing event that's hopefully going to happen later this morning. It's it's quite early in the morning 
and uh, I've been invited along by the Letchworth and District Astronomical Society for the BBC Stargazing Live official event that they're holding here for the solar eclipse. Um, uh, a bit later on, I'll be talking to members of the uh, Letchworth and District Astronomical Society, um, and it should be quite an amazing event. So here I am with uh, Nick and Dave from the uh, Letchworth and District uh, Astronomical Society, and as I mentioned earlier, we're here, we're here for the uh, solar eclipse. Now, what exactly are we expecting to to see today? Well, about now, uh, we should see the moon starting to cross the sun's face. We should see a small indent at this moment in time. Um, and during the next hour, it will cross the sun and pretty, uh, leave a small crescent at maximum just after 9.30. Right. And then after that, it'll move across in the, uh, to the other side and then leave the sun's face about 10.30. So, how often do these occurrences actually take place? They're actually quite rare, especially in the UK. Um, every few years, I'd say. I'm not quite sure when the next one is. The next is. one is uh, 2026. 2026, okay, in the UK, but right. uh, there'll be others in another part of the world before then. We've got a little bit of cloud cover at the moment. Um, would we still be a like? Would there still be a likelihood of seeing? something. Well, I had a look, at a look at a computer earlier which showed some cloud cover and there's a, a, a border a bit north of here somewhere it looked as if it crossed north of, uh, just north of Cambridge here so, and it's supposed to be moving south according to the weather reports so okay. we might catch the end of it. But in any case at 9.30 the place will go completely, well, almost dark mm. so well, the birds will stop singing etc etc. Hopefully, yes. Yeah. Oh, well, that will happen. We can guarantee that. Oh, wow. Uh, it, it gradually goes dark. It, it, you'd really notice if it notice it if it went suddenly dark. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it's uh, less obvious when it goes gradually dark over an hour or so. So, um, can you tell me a little bit about the society? Yes, it's been around since the early 80s. Um, it was started by four people... Uh, at the time and has grown quite a lot since then we've got about 110 members at the moment wow plus family members as well um, we meet not far from here in the free church hall last wednesday in a month yeah uh, where we have a guest speaker we do have occasionally extra talks as well during the middle of the month right um, we have an observatory we have an standalone farm a standalone farm as well Brilliant. With a 14-inch telescope, yeah. Something much bigger than the ones you see around here. Right. And they're observing evenings as well. Great. And we occasionally have trips around the country as well. A couple of years, generally. Wow. Brilliant. Now, 
do you need to have some of this really high spec equipment to get involved or is it quite easy to, to get set up no you don't need to have high spec equipment probably half our members don't have a telescope right they're just interested in astronomy like to come to the talks and look through other people's telescopes as well but we do rent telescopes yes we do five pounds a month that's not very simple ones you could probably get a reasonable start in astronomy for about 300 pounds it's like everything else you know when you get in very very interested it's then thousands and thousands of pounds yeah yeah. i would think about 10 of our members including nick have their own observatories wow that's brilliant right so i'll leave this for now and then we'll come back a little bit later on and um, see how things are progressing okay Okay, so I'm now with Gordon, who's the chairman of the Letchworth and District uh, Astronomical Society. Um, how do you think today went? Well, it's fantastic, wasn't it? Uh, it I mean, was. It, it was. It was really good to see so many people come out, all ages, some children as well, got out of school. I guess you'd have to say we didn't see it for real in the sky, but we had our backup plan in place, so we were able to show live views off the internet. Um, when the internet was breaking up, we had this planetarium software, which showed it exactly as it would appear in Lexworth and it clearly got people's interest um, you know so uh, yeah I would say you have to be careful it looked like a success we have to talk to the people who come and see really and ask them but I think it was I think there was a lot of interest um, and that's, that's what you good. want really Absolutely. because it's, it's given you um, promotion as oh, well yeah, yeah. so it's, to me it's great to see there's a definite change in the level of interest in astronomy in the last few years part of it no doubt to the BBC showing the programmes, uh, raising people's awareness, and it's noticeable. We've noticed it. Um, we had our, uh, a big star party in January, and lots of people come. Yeah. Um, so there's a definite, a definite increase in interest, and it's great to see so many people come out in the morning. But if anybody's interested, just Google LDAS, and we're about the first thing that comes up on the search. Brilliant. And all the information's on the website about talks, events, um, whatever else we're doing. Now, what we like to do on TGP Nominal is people that we have involved on on the podcast, um, we like to make them honorary crew members. And um, what I've got here, uh, if I can present you with it, is... um, a TGP nominal badge, um, yes. mission patch. Right. Okay. So um, yeah. Um, so what I'll ask in a moment, if you if you wouldn't mind, if, if you can hold hold yeah. that and get a uh, I'll get a picture. Yeah, no so we'll put you on the honorary crew member oh, page. So, yeah, thanks again uh, for letting us tag along uh, today. Welcome. Any, anybody that comes along is more than welcome. And, um, yeah, any other events that uh, we can cover for you, we'd, we'd right. love to, okay. to take part. Right. Okay. So, That'd be great. OK. Yeah, thank you. Thanks very much. All right. It was great to meet up with the guys. There was a, a massive array of telescopes out for the event, and it was good to just talk with them uh, about astronomy in general and um, actually mixing with the, the general public and um, you know hearing some of their reactions to what was going on and our first inductee to the honorary crew members page Gordon Ewan uh, who's the, the chairman of the Letchworth and District Astronomical Society um, we had a lot of cloud cover as I've mentioned before 
but we did have live streaming from the Faroe Islands where you could see the totality properly and Stargazing Live, BBC Stargazing Live were actually streaming it and we had it on the projection screens at, nice. at the event so that um, the people could actually watch what was going on there and uh, it was a great event, cold, yeah, it's, it's, cold it's, but a great event Yeah, that's true, when, when did that take place? March <laughs> Yeah, okay, yeah <laughs> And you guys are so far north I'm not surprised. <laughs> so you're on the, um, you know, the crossover between winter and spring. So it was like, oh yeah. yeah. And I made myself. I, I thought, yeah, it's not going to be that cold there. And when I got there, I had all these astronomers in Arctic condition jackets and 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 whatnot. And I'm thinking uh, maybe I should have brought a thicker jacket. And I was, <laughs> I was there for about three hours, and I was like. Oh, yeah, I'm getting a bit cold now. I think a visit to a coffee shop would be great right now. I made that mistake the first time I went to an observatory. which It was in the Pennsylvania mountains. And, oh, dear God, it was cold. <laughs> oh, okay. At least this eclipse is going to be in August for us. So yeah. in that case, we're going to be sweating our butts off. But then again, it'll be nice, cool, and refreshing once the eclipse actually starts. You will notice a difference. <laughs> a real big difference. Uh, the... I, I can't remember uh, in 99 there was a, a, a drop of at least 10 degrees that's a, a, a big drop in a few minutes mm-hmm. it was a really hot day it drops by 10 degrees the birds stop singing <laughs> and then they start singing again because they think it dawn is breaking and they get so confused <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, it's all good, and it's it was really worth seeing. I know it's one of those things that we all know what it looks like. We've seen pictures of it before, but to actually experience it, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and what I'll do is I'll put a few pictures up of my experience in 2015, uh, so you get an idea of what we had to deal with. As I mentioned, there we we got a um, a partial eclipse mainly because it was very cloudy and then the the clouds started to disperse just as it had passed over <laughs> so all we got to see was a, a chunk missing out the side of, of of the sun but seeing that alone and, and managing to get a photograph of it was worth it but uh, yeah it would have been nice to have got the whole thing but <laughs> uh, you know <laughs> Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, spanheadproductions.com. Weebly.com. That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com. Right. I think we should start tying things up. I think so. You've got some editing to do, my friend. I'll certainly have. Thanks again, John, for coming on board. Thanks for putting up with me again. Thanks to Noah Petro for coming on board as well. And thanks to the guys once again at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center for making it possible for us to conduct these interviews and chats. It's absolutely brilliant to work with you guys. And hopefully we can get some of the other NASA facilities to come on board. That would be very cool. Yeah, we'll just have to put some feelers out and see what we can come back with. So 
once again. Thanks, everyone out there. Take care, and we'll speak to you all again real soon. Toodles! Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. Be sure to visit tgpnominal.weebly.com for the show notes for this or any other episode. Just look for the relevant tab on the menu. Let us know what you think of the show. Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com. Because your input is our output. Or you can use the social media icons at the top of the page that include Twitter and Facebook. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also Stitcher and TuneIn On Demand Radio. Don't forget to rate and review us. You can find links on all our podcast pages. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages. And don't forget to spread the word about us. Station, this is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event.